wonder how you respond to these three words. God loves you. Three simple words telling us a simple truth. But how would you respond? God loves you. Maybe as you hear that, you think this. Well, of course he does. That's his job. Of course God loves me. That's what God does, isn't he? He loves us. And don't really think much about it. It's not fresh news to you. Or maybe this morning you sit there and as you hear those three words, you just think, wow, isn't it amazing? That God would love me. The God who, as we started this service about thinking, knows me through and through. He knows me warts and all, and he still loves me. Amazing. Maybe that's your response this morning. Or maybe your response is this. I'm not sure that he does. You might say those words, God loves me, but I'm not sure he does. Maybe you look at your life and the circumstances you're in and think, well, if God loves me, how could this happen? Maybe you look at your heart and think, it's so full of things that I know aren't right. How could he love me if this is how I live? See, it's a simple truth, and yet, this morning, we're going to hear it in lots of different ways. So what does the Bible say? How should we respond to the love of God? What is the love of God all about? Well, I just want us to think on this passage and to hear what God has to say to us through these few verses from uh, John chapter 4, looking at verses 7 to 12. And look at those words again, especially looking at uh, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. We're going to see four things in this passage this morning. We're going to look at the source of love, then we'll look at the shape of love, the problem of love, and the inevitability of love. The source, the shape, the problem, and the inevitability. That's where we're headed. So let's start with the source of love. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For where does love come from? Love is from God. Look at verse 8 again. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Before we go any further, we need to see again this glorious truth about how God can be loving. How can he love? Well, the God can only be love if we understand that he is a triune God, a God of, uh, of the Trinity. And if we grasp this, we should see this is a truth that actually sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. That God couldn't love, if be love, he couldn't be love if he's a single person God. What do I mean? Well, Ask this question. I've asked it before, but it's an important thing that gets us to the heart of this. What was God doing before he made the world? What was God doing before the beginning of the Bible? What was God up to? Well, when we ask that question, this is what we see gets to the heart of who God is and how he can be loved. Because we see that God in the Bible is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit united together in love the trinity triunity trinity they're united together so what was god doing before creation the father son and holy spirit were in this glorious relationship of love they were enjoying one another 
God is not a one-person God. He wasn't bored before this world was made, twiddling his thumbs. No, God is three persons, but one God. Three united together in love. So we have Father, Son, and Spirit. If you look at John chapter 1, verse 18, so the same author as this letter, but in his gospel, he says this. He says that the, um, the Son, for eternity, has been at the Father's side, or could be translated, in the bosom of the Father. So this ancient metaphor for love and intimacy. Do you remember Jesus in John 17, when he's praying to his Father, he says, um, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus didn't just show up in Bethlehem. Now, it wasn't the start. No, he's always been the eternal Son of God loved by the Father through the Spirit. What was God doing before he made the world? He wasn't twiddling his thumbs bored, but there's this, there's this glorious eternal relationship within the Godhead, loving one another. So that's why we can say God is love, because as far back in eternity as you go, God is love. Love is outward looking, and so the Father loves the Son by the Spirit. The Spirit wants to glorify the Son, all of them uh, interacting with one another, united together. So think on this for a moment. God didn't create us because he needed love. He had love anyway. He created us to experience his love. The love within the Godhead was so glorious that it couldn't be kept, had to be shared, because love is always going to be looking outward, looking for another. Love is not inward-looking, but outward. And so God created us to share in this love. And that's why when you become a Christian and you uh, are given the gift of the Spirit, you are enveloped into this glorious love that we were created to know. And that's why in moments when we remember that God loves us, if you're a Christian, it's just something so marvellous and so glorious that it's hard to put words to because we are taking part, we are part of something so wonderful, so amazing. See, this is who God is. God is love. That's why if we were to walk out on the streets of my stake today and to ask this question, tell me what is the most important thing in life, what would the answer be? And it might kind of take a while to think about it, but doesn't it come down to this? Well, relationships. It's my friends or my family. That's what it's all about ultimately people might answer. People on their deathbed don't think, I really wish I spent more time in work, or I really wish I'd have spent more time on the golf course. No, it's, I wish I'd have spent more quality time with those I love. That's the regret, because the most important thing we have, uh, and we can think of, is relationship with others. Why? Because at the heartbeat of the universe, as far back as you go, is relationship of love. God is love. We see in this passage, um, if you look down, the, the Father is there. Uh, we see the Son is there. We see verse 13, the Spirit is there. And this is the God we worship, a triune, holy God. You know, this is so important if you're trying to live a life as a Christian to understand that this is who God is. Because it means that he is love at his core, and everything kind of comes out of that. Often we can fall into the trap of mistrusting God. 
maybe through things happening in our life, events that happen, and we think, well, how could God allow that? Maybe there's um, things that we struggle with, and we think, well, if I can't obey God in this area because, you know, I don't trust him. I think this is what's best for me. But if he is love, then deep down in the core of who he is, he is good. Remember the illustration of Winnie the Pooh? Um, he wanted to make a, a, a trap with Piglet. Now, if you don't know who they are, don't worry. Winnie the Pooh is a bear. Piglet is a, a piglet. And he wants to make a trap for the heffalumps. And so to get the trap for a heffalump, do you know what heffalumps like? They like honey. So this is what he, um, Winnie the Pooh did. As soon as he got home, he went to the larder and he stood on a chair and took down a very large jar of honey from the top shelf. It had honey written on it, H-U-N-N-Y. But just to make sure, Winnie the Pooh took uh, the paper cover off and looked at it. It looked just like honey. But you never can tell, said Pooh. I remember my uncle saying once that he had seen cheese just this colour. So he put his tongue in and took a large lick. Yes, he said, it is, no doubt about that. And honey, I should say, right down to the bottom of the jar. Unless, of course, he said, somebody put cheese in at the bottom just for a joke perhaps i'd better go a little further just in case in case heffalumps don't like cheese same as me ah and he gave a deep sigh sigh i was right it is honey right the way down (laughs) see right the way down to who god is he is good sometimes you might think there's this darkness that we can't trust but if god is love as the bible teaches then you can trust him through and through. Now, before going on, notice here that love is not God. Isn't that what we see everywhere at the moment? And and anywhere, really. Love is everything. Love is the most important thing. Love is all that matters. Listen to the music. Listen to the songs that you um, know well. All you need is love. Everybody needs somebody to love. Love changes everything. It's everywhere, and it's really powerful. Can we see why it's powerful? Because God is love. We're made in his image, and at the heart of the universe is a God of love. And so when we hear it's all about love, then of course we're going to think that. But love is not God. God is love. If we make love God, then it's going to disappoint. It's going to lead us into places which will be dark and far from where we should be. Love is not God, but God is love. And we need to see that. We put God first. There is truth. There is satisfaction in him. And this is the God we're holding out to people. This is the God we pray that people in this valley will come to know. A God who is love. A God who makes sense of our lives. It makes sense of why relationships are so important. Why it's so hard if we don't have relationships with people and loneliness is so hard. Why it's so hard when we have to say goodbye to people and death is such a horrible invasion on God's world. God is love, the source of love. Now, do you believe that this morning? That God is love, that he loves you, that deep down to the core of his being, he is good and he is love. See, we can't go any further until we see the source of love is God. Secondly, this passage shows us the shape of love. Now, we've been talking about where, what was God doing before the foundation of the world. What's he, and these are big things, aren't they? They're deep things. They're rich things. 
hopefully we see that they're not complicated things, but they are deep and rich and kind of mind-blowing when we think about it. And it might seem so far removed from this world. So how can this love be made real, be made visible? Well, look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So this is God's love made visible. What is it? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. How can we see God is love? Where's the proof? Where's the evidence? God doesn't just kind of leave it up here in the kind of theological books and thoughts. No, he comes. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to see that God is love, look at Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we see that God sent his son into the world. And when we look at Jesus, we see the truth about who God is. He is that window into the Godhead. Think of his baptism at the start of his ministry. What happened there? Well, we see that the Spirit descended on the Son. So this is Jesus Christ, the anointed one, anointed with the Spirit. And then what does the Father say? He can't help himself. This is my Son. With him I am well pleased. That's the love the Father has for the Son. And he is there, uh, clothed with the Spirit. So you look at Jesus, Christ, which means the anointed one, the Son of God, anointed by the Spirit. In him we see God's love made manifest. Here it is. And John doesn't stop there. He says, look what this love, look what we're shown about this love, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. See, the shape of this love is, first of all, it's undeserved. It's an undeserved love. The love that God talk, that we're talking about here is not a love that we have earned. It's not that we have made ourselves desirable. And that God has said, now, now that you are good enough, now that you look decent, now that you've sorted yourself out, I will love you. No, but as Paul puts it in Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it. And this is what we see. This is what God is like through, throughout the Bible. You see, we've looked at the Bible overview this morning. When humanity turned away from God, what did God do? He made the first move. Adam, where are you? God made the first move. When he comes to Noah, he initiates that. When he comes to Abraham, he comes and says, Abraham, through you, I'm going to make you a great nation. All the way through the Bible, you see God makes the first move. He takes the initiative. God is always looking outward, always wanting to um, save and rescue. He doesn't wait for us to come to him, but he comes to us. That's the God of the Bible. That's what he is like, undeserved love. That's the shape that we see here. Now, if you're a Christian trusting in Jesus this morning, just stop and think on that for a moment. The only reason that you are a Christian is because God took the initiative in your life. It wasn't down to you, but he called you and you responded. He came for you. Think about the famous parable. It's not called the parable of the conscientious sheep, is it? If you can say that word, conscientious. You know the word I mean. 
the parable of the conscientious sheep. That's not the parable, is it? The sheep who thought, oh, hang on, I'm in a bit of bother here. I need to go and find my shepherd. No, it's the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus went out looking for us. He's the good shepherd. We are lost. We are helpless. God, in his love, reached down to us. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, can you see that God, even now, through his word and in this moment, is reaching out to you? And he's saying, follow me, trust me. He's calling for you to come. And you might sit and think, well, no, wait a minute, I need to sort a few more things out first. And no, 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 let me just come. Turn to me. He takes the initiative. This is undeserved love. We've done nothing to earn it. It is free from heaven. But something else we see here is not it's not just um simply this initiative but we see that it's a costly love this is the shape of love it is a costly love look what we're told about it in the second half of verse 10 in this is love not that we loved god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins this is telling us something deep and rich about why jesus died he gets to the heart of it this is what love is he died as a propitiation for our sins that is, he didn't simply just die, but he died to accomplish something. He died to save us. Imagine a couple in a rowing boat, and they're out in this romantic situation, and they're on a lake. And the man stands up and says to his um, bride-to-be, maybe they're engaged in this picture, <laughs> to his bride-to-be, I am going to show you how much I love you. And he jumps out of the boat and drowns. And you go, what are you doing? That's not love. But imagine the scene again. They're out in a rowing boat, and it starts to get a bit rocky. The boat capsizes. There, the, um, the girl is drowning. The boy then saves and rescues her. But in so doing, he dies. Well, that is love. He gave his life for her life. See, Jesus wasn't just dying to say, look how much I love you. That would be ridiculous. He was doing something. He was accomplishing something. He was taking the punishment we deserve. He was taking the heat, as it were, of our rebellion against God. The consequences of all of our sin and failure, he was taking on himself. Uh, apparently, NASA in early space travel needed to make, well, they, this is not apparently, they did need to make sure that their space, the astronauts came back safe. And so what they had to do was build a shield to help because as the um, spaceship was coming back through the atmosphere it was going to reach really high um, temperature temperatures and so instead of the astronauts feeling the heat of that temperature which would have killed them they had to build a special shield that would protect them as they came through here's the apparently bit apparently it was called a propitiatory shield there's another word in this hard propitiatory shield that is the shield took the heat on behalf of the astronauts See, Jesus, that's what it means when it's saying propitiation, was taking the heat of the judgment of God that we deserve. He was taking the blame for us. We deserve to face it on our own. We've rejected a holy God, the God who is there's nobody more important than him. And we've offended him. And Jesus says, let me take the consequences of your rebellion. Let me take the heat. And that is costly. It cost him everything. 
And he, verse 9 tells us, he did that so that we might live through him. He died so that we could live. See, it's a costly, sacrificial love. Do we realize again today what Jesus has done for you? What he was willing to do? That the price has been paid. That all of our guilt and shame was poured on him. That God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And if you have grasped that, rejoice in it this morning. That you don't have to pay any more for your sin. That you don't have to bear the weight of the guilt. He took it away. And we are free. But this morning, maybe you feel the weight of your sin. And maybe you need to turn to Jesus for the first time and say, Jesus, please pay the price for my sin in my place. See, the love that we see here, the shape of it is that it's not deserved. As he says later in this passage, we only love because God loved us. He took the initiative. But also it's a costly love that Jesus died to pay the price, to take the heat of our judgment. So that's the source of love and the shape of love. Let's look at the problem of love next. We see this in verses 7 and 8, the start of it there. Um, because it says this, um, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And verse 7 tells us, love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So can someone love if they don't know God? Because John seems to be saying here, well, well, no, they can't. If they don't know the love of God, then they can't truly love. Now, that should jar with us a little bit, because I'm sure all of us can think of people who aren't Christians who've shown immense love. We see immense displays of sacrifice, immense displays of care from people who don't know Jesus. So how could that be? Well, it shouldn't be a surprise to us because we're made in God's image. What is God like? He's a God of love. And so we shouldn't be surprised that we see people who aren't Christians showing amazing love and sacrifice. And sometimes showing, often showing greater love than Christians. Because we're not saved by our works, remember? So we shouldn't, shouldn't be surprised when people are better than Christians who aren't Christians. But there's still something major missing in people's lives who aren't Christians. Something major. Listen to this story to see. Um, this isn't my illustration, but I've got it from somewhere else. And, and I think it gets this point across. Imagine a woman, and she's a, a poor widow. She has one son. And she teaches him, as he grows up, how she wants him to live. She says this, always tell the truth, work hard, and help the poor. Okay, that's what I want you to do. Always tell the truth, work hard, and help the poor. Now, she makes very little money. She is poor. Uh, but with all the savings that she saved up over the years, she's able to put this, um, this lad through university. And so he goes away to university. And then he graduates after massive sacrifice from his mother. But imagine when he graduates, he hardly ever speaks to her again. Maybe he sends a Christmas card to his mother, but he doesn't visit her. He won't answer any phone calls from her or letters. He just doesn't speak to her. But he lives just like she said. He doesn't tell any lies. He works hard and he gives to the poor. Now, would you say that's okay? Would you say that kind of life is acceptable? 
I think we'd all agree, no, of course it isn't. See, by living a good life, but neglecting the relationship we are wholly um, dependent on and who we owe everything to, neglecting that is actually something that is horrible at its core. In the same way, if the God who created us, the one who made us, he, we owe everything to, a great sacrifice. If we just live a good life, it's not enough. Because we're ignoring the one we owe everything to. We owe him a debt that is great. We need him. So can somebody who's not a Christian truly love? Well, we can see the love displayed in amazing ways, as I said, but we are ignoring, or they're ignoring, the, the, the relationship that they uh, need so much. hope that clears up the problem we see here of love, that Jesus came to pay the debt of our ignoring him. He came to pay that punishment for us so we could be forgiven. So the source of love, we've looked at the shape of love, we've looked at the problem of love. Let's finally see the inevitability of love. The, what will happen when we grasp this. When we experience the deep love that God has for us, your life can't be the same again. When we experience what he has done for us, it will transform us. So verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. What are we to do when we've encountered love? We love others. What are we to do when we, um, when we do that? We're we to, we to uh, pour out our lives for other people. When you look back to the early church, it's amazing to see what happened. So Jesus lived, he died, he rose again, then he ascended to heaven. Uh, and what did he do he, before he went? He commissioned uh, 12 disciples to say, to go into all the world and tell people about me and, and teach them what I've taught you. And with a f within a few hundred years, Christianity had turned the world upside down. Now, why was that? How could that happen from these 12 disciples who, as we know, reading the Gospels, weren't the best? <laughs> you know, they, 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 they were failures. How could God do that? Well, there's lots of reasons. Uh, one of them is the power of God at display. But as you read through the early church history, there's something surprising that stands out. It wasn't achieved by political power. It wasn't achieved by battles or oppression. Something that stood out to everybody looking around was the nature of the people, the Christians who were there at the start. Tertullian, who was a historian from the second century, said this, that the Romans would say, see how they love one another. Look at how they love one another. There's something supernatural about it. And when a plague swept throughout ancient, um, the ancient world in the third century, Christians apparently were one of the only ones who would care for the sick. And they did it at the risk of contracting um, the, uh, the plague that was there. Other people would just throw uh, members of their families out into the street before they even died to protect themselves. But Christians would go and they'd willingly put themselves in the line of danger of getting infected so that they could look after those in need. And when people saw that, that stood out. And they said, see how they love. Nothing like they'd ever seen before. And the, the love that they showed, what did it look like? Well, it was undeserving and it was costly. And does that ring any bells? They were showing the love that they'd experienced from Jesus. 
So as we reflect on God being love, as we think of the shape of love, it needs to shape our lives. And there is an inevitability about what our lives would look like and what love looks like. We should be showing an undeserving love. That is, we need to love those who are maybe, at first sight, might be unlovely. There are some people who are easy to love because they're like us, they like the same things as us, you know, they're easy to chat, chat to, and you get a lot out of that relationship. But there are others who are not. We maybe don't have much in common, harder to talk to. What are we to do? We're to love in the same way that God loved us. He didn't wait for us to be lovely. He didn't wait for us to be perfect. He came and dealt with us in our mess. And so we need to be those who are loving, even when it's, when it's hard and when it's not um, the easiest. We're called to love as Christ loved, undeserving. But as well, this love will inevitably be costly. It's going to be hard to do that. It's going to take time. It might even take money to be able to um, care for people. It's going to take emotional energy and cost. It might hurt because we might not be understood or the love might not be reciprocated. We might not get much out of it. It might be all out and nothing in return. But when we realize that Christ has done for us and how costly his love is for us, suddenly then we realize that must be the shape of our love as well. Remember hearing of a, a Christian who was wrapped up warm on one winter's evening, feet up, slippers on by the fire, roaring, and there's a knock on the door, and as he opened the door, the heat rushing out, it was somebody from his church, and they said, look, I'm really sorry, but could you run me down to the train station? My car's broken down, I need to get to this place for this time. And this person responded, if Jesus could come from heaven for me, then I can get out of my car and take you down to the train station. It's only a simple thing, but can you see how just realizing the love of God, that God had for him, then drove him to, to drive his friend down to the train station? If we've received an abundance of love, there's no way that we can keep that to ourselves. There should be an overflow. He's done this for me. When you've experienced love and generosity from someone else, you know there's something infectious about it, that you need to be generous to someone else. You want to because you've experienced the kindness and the joy of others and you want to share it to those around it around us so there's an overflow we're full up you can be generous when you've got a lot and in the love of god we have got uh, so much an abundance of love from him so when we experience the deep love of jesus it will transform us and transform how we respond to those around us it'll fill us up so are we filled with the love of Christ. If we're feeling empty this morning, and if we feel like we can't give because it just feels like I'm, I'm running on empty, running on fumes, as you say, on the car, isn't it? What do we do? We need to go back to the source of love. We need to go back to thinking on who God is and how that's displayed in Jesus. We need to spend some time thinking through what God has done for us in the gospel, to recharge, to fill up again, and to think of even in our unloveliness, how much he loved us. And that's one reason we need to keep meeting together, isn't it? To be reminded of these things, to fill up again so that we can then go and give. And pray for us as a church that we are filled with the love of Christ 
to show it to others. Now let me ask a question again before we finish. What's your response to this, these three words? God loves you. I pray that as we just think on those words, that God, the triune, amazing, loving God, loves you, we'd all in our hearts be saying now, thank you. Hallelujah, amazing. And that's for everyone here. God loves you. What are you going to do in response to him? He invites everybody to come and follow and trust in him. We're going to sing about that love, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? We'll sing together in a moment. Let me close um, in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel, and we thank you for the display of love we see there. Help us, Lord, never to get bored of the, of the gospel, never to get bored of Jesus, but to see more and more just how amazing he is. Please help us, Lord, as a church, to show and reflect this love uh, to the world around us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Let's stand together and sing then, And Can It Be?
Let's pray. Amazing love, and can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? We thank you for the amazing love.